Thanks for tuning in for Access U Time. Tom Williams. Our uh, guest for today, Porter Fox, uh, has found himself double booked for today. And uh, so we have uh, rescheduled that conversation for tomorrow. Hope you'll tune in for tomorrow's discussion about uh, Porter Fox's new book, Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Today, we've reached back in the archives the summer of last year for a very interesting discussion with Simon Tolkien and his novel of World War I called No Man's Land. That name sounds familiar probably to you, and uh, that's because Simon Tolkien is grandson of J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings. And uh, we'll talk about World War I, talk about No Man's Land. We'll also talk about J.R.R. Tolkien, his experiences in World War I, and Lord of the Rings. Here's my discussion with Simon Tolkien from August of 2017. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Simon Tolkien, whose new novel is inspired by the real-life experiences of his grandfather, J.R.R. Tolkien, during World War One. And uh, the novel follows the uh, life of uh, the hero Adam Rain, from the slums of London to the riches of an Edwardian country house, from the dark seams of a Yorkshire coal mine to the exposed terrors of the trenches in France. Adam's journey from boy to man is set against the backdrop of a society violently entering the modern world. Simon Tolkien studied modern history at Trinity College, Oxford, went on to become a London barrister specializing in criminal defense. He's the author previously of Final Witness and The Inheritance, courtroom dramas, drawing on his first-hand knowledge of the criminal justice system, and a King of Diamonds and Orders from Berlin, set during World War II. As I mentioned, Simon is the grandson of J.R.R. Tolkien and is the director of the Tolkien Estate. He lives with his wife and two children in Southern California, but joins us today from the U.K. Simon Tolkien, welcome to the program. Hey, hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on. This is great. We uh, we are glad to, to have it's you weird on. weird that you're talking to me in England, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> as I say, I'm usually further west than you are. Right. I've jumped right. over you in the last two days. Right. There we are. Uh, so you, uh, you you spent some time as a barrister in England. What uh, what took you out to uh, California? Well, I, my wife is American, mm-hmm. and so we had one of these deals. You know that um, when she when she came to England on a creative writing course, she ended up staying for twenty five years. And then we thought we should try America as well as having tried England. And um, so we we went there, and I really liked it. I love living in California. Um, and I, I'm not as homesick as I thought I would be. Oh, well, so, well, I really good. like Santa yeah. Barbara. <laughs> oh, you're so in Santa Barbara. Right on the okay. Pacific. Yeah, beautiful place. Yeah, 90 miles north of L.A. Yeah. I'm really, really happy there. Mm. So, but uh, it's weird because, you know, I went to um, I went to Santa Barbara and I don't really go anywhere else. So I just, I, I know Santa Barbara incredibly well. And I know St. Louis, which is where my wife comes from, in New York. And I really haven't done much other traveling in the uh, in the U.S., and I'm sorry to say that I've never been to Utah. Well, so that's something I need to do. We would we would love to have you. Just let us know. We'll host you. I'd uh, really uh, like uh, that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, so this this novel, you you uh, say the publicity materials say inspired by the real life experiences of your grandfather, um, and yeah. uh, I think you and other people have said if you you read um, his works, um, it's you can see World War One in there. Yeah, I, I, I think both of those things are true. I, I, I think that the, 
my grandfather spent a great deal of his life living in Oxford in a kind of quiet and uneventful way. His life was as a writer, but his early life was really very eventful. And I thought that, you know, parts of his early life would, um, would, would be good from the point of view of um, inspiring a book. And there are elements in this book which kind of do follow his life. My, my hero in, in this book, um, he loses his mother at an early age, and that was a very formative experience to my grandfather as well. They both lose their mother at about the age of 10, and they were both kind of home-educated and very much inspired, both my hero and my grandfather. Mm. And then later on, having become orphaned, just like my grandfather, um, he finds a way out of his um, of his situation by getting a scholarship to Oxford University, Oxford, where I am at the moment. But then having found a, a new life in Oxford, then that's cut short by the First World War. And my hero, just like my grandfather, has to leave Oxford and go to fight in the trenches in France, uh, leaving his beloved behind, um, just like my hero. Mm. And uh, thinking that he probably will never come back because the chances of officers surviving the First World, First World War in the trenches were very small, particularly in 1916. And both my grandfather and the hero of this book, the central experience for them of that war was the battlefield of the Somme, which, I, I don't know if you know, Tom, but it was a, it was a, a situation in 1916 which had become very stagnated. And both sides, both the German side and the Allied side, were in trenches. And um, there was a long period of build-up by the British and French side towards the first day of the Somme. Um, and my grandfather had this same experience. That was, He didn't actually fight on the first day of the Somme. But the first day of the Somme, which was a great disaster for the British Army, in which they lost 20,000 men in one day, is really the centerpiece of my book. Mm. Uh, and this tremendous sense of disappointment that it didn't lead to the uh, breakthrough that they had hoped for. And I want to get in, into that. You write so very in the, vividly in sense, about the Somme. It, 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 in this way, the, the book is inspired by my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I think also that in that way, it, it's been very good for me because it's, it's an interesting and in some ways difficult experience to have as a relation somebody who is so famous. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so mm -hmm. um, it, I've lived in a certain sense in his shadow. And so um, it's, helped me really kind of come out of that and feel that I've done something which I, I hope would honor him as well. And so uh, I think it's brought me closer to him by actually write, writing this book. Hmm. And I, I think it's kind of brought to life part of what his experience would have been. Uh, so I want to ask you just to, I want to jump in. You write very vividly about the psalm. It's, it's you, you know, you take the reader there. Thank you. It's, it's um, sure. just a horrific uh, battle. A million men, you know, uh, dead and uh, just just horrible. Mm. Uh, before, we, we, before we get there, I think uh, just a couple of minutes, people be interested. Um, your, your grandfather died when you were, what, in your teens? I think when I was 14, Tom. Yeah. I, 1973, I was born in 1959. So it's enough time to know somebody pretty well. And I was um, the, the grandson of his grandchildren who was like in a really quite good position 
uh, in the in that formative period to spend a lot of time with them because um and I would go down on the train to Bournemouth and stay really there for a week. Bournemouth is a coastal town where he retired with uh my grandmother in the last kind of ten years of his life. And I, I, I spent a lot of time with him there. So he's very vivid to me. But as a grandfather, you know, I, I wasn't, if he lived like another six years, then I would have had a, a kind of different version of him. But um, he's vivid to me as, as a grandfather, yes. Mm. Uh, and as you say, it's uh, you became a writer that you're living the shadow of a very famous writer by, by this time. And I think you've said that you... You didn't want to tackle this particular subject immediately. You, you were glad that you've, you'd written some other books. Well, yeah, I, I, for me, becoming a writer was, uh, most people, you know, they start writing short stories and, you know, they write novels and everything. But I think that the whole relationship with my grandfather really put me off writing and made me feel that I wouldn't be able to write, um, you know, for, for a very long time. And it wasn't until, I'm trying to think, until I was 40 with the millennium that I um, actually started writing. In a curious way, I think I'd been invisibly getting ready to do so because I kept a, I, I kept a diary for about eight years, eight or nine years before I actually started writing novels. And I think that was a way of getting used to writing and getting to have a, my own voice because when I first started writing... My big problem was that I could, I was very self-conscious, and so I could kind of hear what I was writing, and I wasn't comfortable with it. I think the most important way of learning to write is that you're actually comfortable with your own voice. You can hear what you what you write without wanting to like squeak or scream. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So right. I think that was really important. So I, I learned how to write for a long time, but while I was writing a diary, I never thought that I could write fiction, and I only really started, in, as I say, in about two thousand. So it was, it was late on. Whether that was an effect, or maybe it was an effect on my grandfather, that I really felt that I couldn't write until much, much later. Mm. And then when I did start, I thought the, the best thing to do would be to start writing what I knew about. And I'd been a criminal barrister in London for quite a while. And so I started writing courtroom dramas. And my first couple of books are courtroom dramas. But then afterwards, then I wanted to escape out of that. So it was kind of a circuitous route. And I started to write, um, I, I stopped writing courtroom dramas, and then I write it, was writing crime fiction. But then I started to set my crime fiction back in the past. And that's what brought me full circle to what I studied at university, back to writing historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And No Man's Land is the first book that doesn't really involve a crime. Uh, or solution, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. Uh, so World War One, such a seminal event, uh, a dividing yeah. line, really. I mean, a lot of historians have, have, have mentioned this. It's uh, that people who who survived it looked back across that great gulf and and mourned a, a sense of idealism and the, the way things were before World War One. Yeah, it, it's so strange that. If you look at the late Victorian and Edwardian period, which, and I suppose the best example that we all know about that is Downton Abbey, is that, and you, is really that they just had no sense of um, what was coming, and the um, developing situation in Europe, the international situation, at first to people uh, in the summer of 1914, seemed just like um, you know a small cloud on the horizon. 
I mean, it grew and grew and grew until it was like the whole sky had gone dark and uh, catastrophe followed. But people weren't expecting it. And that we're, apart from the Crimean War, which was a war that happened far away, there'd been a hundred years of peace since the end of the Napoleonic War. So people had no, no sense at all uh, that a war was coming. And equally, they had no idea of what a war would involve, because since the Napoleonic War, there have been these vast changes in armaments, uh, and people had no idea what that would actually mean. So that when people went to fight, uh, all the people volunteering and queuing around the blocks in order to go and fight in, in August, they were in such a hurry because they thought it would be a mobile war and it would be over by Christmas. And they had no idea that it would involve entrenchment Hmm. and being static, and what he eventually came to mean, which was just sitting in a hole in the ground, having shells exploding all around you, and being attacked with uh, gas and um, disease. So, you know, it was it was a completely different war from what people expected, and people also didn't think that war was coming. And um, it was this sense also, which was very strange in the Edwardian era, um, in England, that everything seemed like it was full of progress, you know, that uh, the world was changing in such a apparently positive way. You know, you were having the motor car had completely changed things in the last 20 years. And then there was the cinema and there was airplanes and people were flying across the channel and everything was beginning. But this whole new, what seemed like technological change towards progress turned with these armaments into something completely different. And ended up with what I tried to show in my book, which is the big, it was a big illustration of really the machine being bigger than man. And the trench warfare in the First World War was really the machine taking over from man. And just horrific losses. I want to talk a little bit uh, before we go to break, and then after mm. break, have you uh, take us to the, the Battle of the Somme, where you write very vividly. I learned a lot from, from this mm. book. Um, one thing um, you. that you point out is that by summer of, of 1916, when the Battle of Somme takes place, um, mm. the, the regular army had been decimated. This was a new army that had been recruited. Yes. The, 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 British, the British Minister of War, Lord Kitchener, saw very quickly that this war was unlike what everyone had been led to expect, going to last a very long time because the forces on each side were evenly balanced. And so he put out this call for um, volunteers, and they poured in in the, first, uh, in the late part of 1914 and early 1915. And out of that was created a new army, which was trained um, during 1915. And it was only in the middle of 1916 that it was actually ready to be used and why it was such a strange army, as you say, because the other European powers like Germany and Russia and, and France were using conscript armies. But England, right up until the middle of 1916, we, was reliant on, on this big volunteer army. And this volunteer army was thrown in for the first time at the Battle of the Somme. But one of the most interesting things, in a way, is that the generals of the regular army who were in charge of this new army didn't trust these new men. And so when the uh, first day of the Somme came, they were, not, they, they were told to advance in a, 
very drilled and slow way. They weren't really given any initiative at all. And so when the Germans uh, came up and started machine gunning them, they they weren't ready for that at all. Yeah, just it was with horrific uh, results. And the 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 uh, you you write in the book about the propaganda, the jingoism, the the pressure on on young men, old ladies going up to young men in the street, shaming them. Uh, you 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 need to go fight that sort of thing. Yeah, the white feather. And then more well, recently, we had that movie that was remade, which was wonderful, called the four, the, the I, I remember it called the Four Feathers or the Five Feathers, which is about the guy who's given the white feather and then uh, goes out and saves the people, all his friends who, who did volunteer to redeem himself. But this was because as 1915 went on and they started using gas and the actual um, ability to break through on either side was very restricted and the casualties started advancing, they started increasing, it was much more difficult for them to raise volunteers. And that's when the pressure got much greater. And I have examples in my book of the way in which, uh, as you say, people were kind of shamed into into volunteering. So in a major scene in my book, my 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 guy is uh, on holiday, um, or he's gone 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 to a coastal town, and he goes to the cinema in order to watch Charlie Chaplin, and he's sitting there enjoying the evening, and suddenly the script that they sh- they show Charlie Chaplin and the Keystone Cops. And at the end of the cinema showing, they raise the screen. And behind the screen, there is the, um, the recruiting sergeant at his table. And they send out this, this lady who uh, is singing patriotic songs. And she walks up and down the aisles, patting people on the shoulder. And uh, if they don't go forward in order to sign up the recruiting sergeant, then they give them white feathers and the rest of the people in the, um, in the, in the, in the audience shame them. So there's enormous pressure, and this was happening at football stadiums, so that, you know, you didn't even really want to go out because you would be shamed in this way and sent, and sent out. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, in 1914, people didn't know what the war was going to involve, and there was vast amounts of enthusiasm to go. So I have both these in my book. Mm-hmm. There's, there's longing to, um, to sign up in 1914 when people who were, you know, underage, would go along to the recruiting recruiting stations, and then they would be, um, you know, lying about their age. And many people who ended up in France were were underage at that time. Let's take a break. When and we then come later, back. the pressure that put on them. Uh, let's go. Let's take a break. Come back with. I want to uh, have you take us to the to the Somme uh, and uh, trench warfare and um, and talk about that. Uh, the uh, novelist No Man's Land. The author is Simon Tolkien, and he lives in Santa Barbara, but he's joining us from Oxford. And uh, we'll have more following this break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Bike shares are booming in the U.S. as more cities adopt new technology like dockless bike sharing, which lets riders leave their bike wherever they want. Doing a 200-bike pilot in a city is a a great start, but really there's a demand for several thousand uh, or tens of thousands in some markets of of shared electric bikes. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music. 
from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I have with me for the hour Simon Tolkien. He is author previously of uh, Final Witness and The Inheritance, King of Diamonds and Orders from Berlin. The new novel is set in World War One. It's called No Man's Land. And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So Simon Tolkien, your uh, hero, Adam, uh, has uh, grown up yeah. poor. Uh, he he has, I think, by the time he's heading off to France, his fortunes have improved. He's uh, he's the third son of sorts of a of a rich man. He's he's in love with the parson's daughter. Uh, I think he's been accepted to Oxford, and uh, and then then off he goes. Off he's shipped off to to uh, to France. Um, I wonder if you could uh, paint the picture for us before the Battle of the Somme. Say, you know, June. What would life in the trenches have been like, uh, you know, before July first of twenty six or nineteen sixteen? Sure. Um, the sector in which the attack was made um, was a quiet sector of the front up until when the attack happened. Why I think this this battle is so strange is when we think of war. We think of something um, which is one mobile and two going on. But the peculiar part, I mean, like the American Civil War, you know, it's, it's, it's a moving phenomenon in which uh, there are a series of battles in different places. What was so strange about the Western Front was that it was static, is that you could actually go to the war, you could visit the war, you could leave the war because the war was in a particular place. It didn't involve, as it did in World War II, civilian bombing. The, the role of airplanes was really much more as just reconnaissance and observation. And the, it was so static because of the role of guns in, in it. And it was impossible really to advance because you were constantly under shell fire. And the line had been really hadn't moved very much at all for about a year. And so what was happening in the um, spring and early summer of 1916 is that the British were getting ready um, for something called the Big Push, which was the idea that you could break through the line using this new army that we were talking about, that you would be able to break through the German line and... Um, carry on to Berlin. There were cavalry regiments ready to exploit a breakthrough. Horses up until this point had played no role, but everyone believed that they would be able to break through and the horses would be able to carry on. Um, and so the preparation was like um, creating a full kind of city of um, getting everything ready. There was a vast amount of training um, and all this was going on. The other... the, the the, the, the timetable was brought forward because the Germans had attacked the French further down the line at a place called Verdun, where there were terrible losses. And so the pressure to relieve the French actually grew. And the idea was is that you could use the British guns to 
smash the German defences and smash the German wire. And so this vast bombardment, which was the biggest bombardment that had ever been in history, began about a week before, before zero day and went on for an entire week. And you could actually hear the sound of the bombardment in France in the south of England. And it was an incredible noise which went on and on and on. And the um, British soldiers who were being brought up to the trenches um, were, you know, full of optimism because they were told by the generals that the Germans on the other side would not be able to survive uh, this level of bombardment. But when the zero hour actually came, it had to be postponed by 48 hours because of, um, because of bad weather. When it eventually came, um, they, the British had cut, up, cut their own wire so that they could go through. The, they were so convinced that they had smashed the German defenses um, that they went out um, in the morning. They went out in the light at 7.30 in the morning. They uh, heralded the fact that they were coming by setting off several mines that they'd mined under the German lines. And um, when they came out, the German machine gunners, who had, so German soldiers who had been surviving in their own dugouts, which were far stronger made than the British actual trenches were, because they were made out of concrete, had, had sufficient time to come up out of their dugouts, man the machine guns, and they had already lined their machine guns on the actual cuts in the British wire. And so there was a complete lack of surprise, and the Germans were ready for them, so that as they came out through their wire, walking, laden down with this vast amount of equipment, each of the um, British soldiers were carrying about 70 pounds of equipment, walking across no man's land, they were um, mown down by the... German machine gunners, and the last, some of them say that the last things that the British smelt was the smell of home, because of the mown grass, which was such a feature of England, was the smell of the, the, trap, the, 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 the bullets actually siding down the grass and siding down the, uh, the British soldiers. And in my book, um, some of the soldiers actually do manage to get across into the German line, but there... They were completely marooned uh, because the support for them couldn't come across because the fire down onto no man's land was uh, absolutely dreadful. And so in my book, we have a situation where, these, where a party or a platoon of British soldiers have got into the German line and are therefore uh, have to stay there until night and then cross back over no man's land by night. They also had, uh, Tom, they had these tin triangles which were placed on their backs. And that had a terrible effect because when they fell down, um, they were actually able to, um, in the, 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 the tin shone in the sunlight. So that the German gun, the German snipers were able to pick them off in that way. So it was a terrible, terrible disaster that day. And um, that was really what happened. And this great hope of being able to break through turned into a, a disaster. Now, the Battle of the Somme itself carried on uh, for another six months, and in all that six months, the British were not able even to advance to the level that they uh, had hoped for on the first day. Mm. 
There's a scene in your book. Sorry, where, rather a long answer. No, no, that's that that's it's perfect. A strange day, yeah, you know. Yeah. You have everything starting off, everything building to a zero hour, to a moment, and I've always been transfixed by this idea of people sitting in a trench waiting for zero, waiting to go over the top uh, at that very moment, and. When the guns stopped, there was the sound of the larks and the birds overhead, and then they went out, and then everything, everything just turned, turned, turned to, turned to disaster. Mm. There's a scene in your book where where the you know, night falls finally, and uh, they're yes. they're waiting for a, a, what was they expect would be a possible German counterattack, and they've piled up yes. bo- they've piled up bodies. Um, and, and the, trying desperately to get their own machine gun uh, ready um, so that they can and then it perhaps, sticks. and then it sticks, to try to fend off this, this uh, German uh, counterattack. Uh, just, just horrible scenes. Another scene in the book, they, as they advance uh, forward you know, to the trenches, they're, they're, they're people digging graves, and they're told, don't worry about it. Yeah, I, that, that, was a, that was a major part. Um, one of the main characters you talked in the end about um, you talked at the beginning about my son being in love with the parson's daughter, which is sounds like a little bit of a cliche. But what happens to the um, the parson in the book, who's an important character in the book, um, is, is is not cliched at all. In the sense that the parson who who went out there, he becomes completely devastated by what he sees and the uh, and the carnage. And in the in a sense, at the end, he goes mad, and he's just absolutely desperate to keep burying people. But the German shell fire is actually blowing up the people that he's actually burying. And so, he, as he buries them, the the it's just like a scene out of some terrible movie. The actual graves themselves are being blasted up into into the air by the uh, German guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the men returning, they uh, they didn't have a diagnosis of PTSD, right? Uh, but but uh, it's obvious that the, um, I guess they call it shell shock. What uh, what happened with the men returning well, who this, had problems? This became a, yeah, it, because um, at that time there was one there, there wasn't the shell fire was a new thing, and two. Um, the British authorities didn't want to recognize shell fire because once they recognized shell fire, there would really be a basis for everybody to say, well, I don't want to carry on, if you see what I mean. So um, a lot of people, there's been controversy in the last 30 years in England when people were saying that many of the people who were shot because there were hundreds of men who were actually shot for cowardice or desertion, who people now say were actually suffering because because of the exposure to shell fire from um, from shell shock, and it's only over over time that this led to actually those people being pardoned. I have a scene where somebody is actually shot um, in um, in my book, and this, this was happening obviously regularly that um, people people were, sh- were, were what they called shot at dawn, and, that, because they had had and then when you come back. I think this is more dealing also with what you were saying, Tom. When people are, are returning to to England, particularly if they come back on leave, they've been completely changed 
by their experience of the war. And what I was saying earlier about the very localized area of the war, this strange idea that you can go to the war and leave the war, means and the, the, the fact that the women at home and all the people at home really had no idea what it was like to be in the war. And then people coming home on leave, it's completely surreal. You know, they leave the trench in the morning. And by the next morning, ne- next day, they're back in England, and England hasn't changed at all. And the people back in England have no idea what they're actually experiencing. And they also, the soldiers don't want to tell, even if they've got the vocabulary and the articulacy, to tell those at home. They want to protect them from that experience. And this means that in the context of my book, um, it's very difficult for soldiers to continue relationships with uh, both their families and with um, people, the women at home. Uh, and I, this, this creates very great difficulty for, for my hero in terms of how he is unable really to connect uh, and with, with, with the lady that he's engaged to, which leads her to, on the rebound, marry his rival, which um, obviously leads to a lot of trouble and is an important, play, is an important way in which the plot develops in my book. And I think that you've, you, you see this having happened also with people coming back from Vietnam in America. And you see that marvelous, those marvelous films. I mean, films like The Deer Hunter explore, explore precisely this, uh, this disconnect between people who have had an experience of such a vivid and terrifying kind far away and then come back to a, to a world which doesn't understand that experience. Mm. I'm not sure about the World War One veterans. My father was a veteran of World War Two. He he, I guess, typical. Right. You know, he ta- he talked a bit about it. But he didn't tell us everything. A lot of World War Two veterans mm-hmm. didn't didn't talk much. Um, I don't know about World War One. I. I don't know if your grandfather talked about his experiences. I think the general pattern is that people didn't talk when they mm-hmm. came home. Is that they, and then this disconnection occurred when they when they did come home. This. Um, People describe London in the um, period immediately following the end of the war. Uh, at night, when you would go out into London, there would be just innumerable crowds of men walking, most of them on their own, because they couldn't sleep at night um, because of what they'd experienced. And so just endless men walking through the streets of London. And of course, many, many coming back, having been grievously wounded or blinded uh, by, by the... Um, so enormous numbers of wounded and um, disabled people as well and blind people, the effects of gas as well. Yeah, just horrible. Uh, There's some, there some interesting details in your book. I wonder if you could talk about the penny mm. sit-up. Well, what I wanted to describe, it, it's a very strange period, and it, it comes across a little in Downton Abbey, but what Downton Abbey is really, is giving you the upper-class part of society, but the underbelly of Edwardian society in England was that people were very, very poor, and there was an enormous gap between the poor and the rich, and it's very much an important part in my book of the um, of this gap between rich and poor, and my hero's father is is, is a union man, and there was um, real violence in England between um, employed employers and employed, 
and nowhere more than in the uh, the coal mines. And in my book, there is um, the first part of the book is very much set in the coal mines in Yorkshire, in a period of massive industrial unrest. Um, and a penny sit-up was a place in London, which was run really by the Salvation Army, which was where the poor of London could could get out of the cold at night uh, and during the day. But what they why it was called a penny sit-up is you paid a penny and you could sit, but you couldn't lie down. So you had to learn to, to sit standing, to, to sleep sitting up. And there's a point where uh, my hero and his father are down by Blackfriars Bridge, and he takes um, his son into the sit-up and there's this just vast hall in which there are maybe a thousand men all sitting up, all sleeping, and this huge noise of snoring coming up, and these the, 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 the wardens walking up and down on either side to make sure that nobody lurches over and lies down. Uh, you could also go and, um, if you were poor, you could be in the library, but they didn't have places to sit, so thus the penny sit up. And uh, I guess if you're in the library, you had to uh, just keep standing. Is that the? I guess you could at least be. Yeah, yeah. and then they, they yeah, you, but you had you had to stand. And then wow. You, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the stories of people hanging on because it was very cold. People hanging on to you know they would have newspapers hanging off, um, hanging off wooden bars, and so people would hang onto the wooden bars and try and sleep that way. Hmm. Amazing. And you couldn't get into the parks because all the parks had um, iron railings around. Hmm. So it was it was it was a hard time it was a hard time to be poor and this was a period of rapid industrialization and it was a period in which you know the people were being paid very little money and then you know when there were strikes would be strike breakers yeah. um this was this was important and in the coal mines it was extremely dangerous because particularly there was a lot of methane in there and fire damp and there would be explosions and often and people would uh, there were a lot of death from that and a lot of dispute between um, workers and employers in relation to safety measures which play an important part in my book and there's a major event in my book when there is a um, when there is an explosion in the mine mm. and the miners infuriated by the what they consider the lack of any provision for their own safety march on the house of the employer um, during the night, which leads to a fire. I wonder if you could tell me, uh, just before we go to break here, what a knocker-upper was. That's another interesting detail. In, in the, the mining towns in the north, when uh, because they people would go to work in the dark, there would be a man who would be employed by the mines to go round um, on a bicycle with a long pole, uh, with a um, with a sort of bell on the end, and he would knock on people's windows as he went past in order to get them ready to go out on the shift, um, and then they would um, all get ready and walk out to the mine. Yeah, just uh, That's a knocker amazing. upper. Amazing, a knocker upper. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk more about this and and. Uh, 
class differences, your your hero um, does have some upward mobility uh, in the book at a cost. Yes. Um, and we'll talk about yeah, that uh, following absolutely. following a break. We're talking Thank to you, uh, Simon Tolkien. Uh, the new novel, No Man's Land, uh, is out. It's set in uh, World War One, and uh, during that Edwardian uh, period, we've been talking about the book. Continue that with uh, the next uh, segment. You're welcome to join the conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Canada is striking back at the U.S. with retaliatory tariffs of more than $12 billion. Canadians are livid. The anger is across the country. Many are boycotting U.S. products. Because of comments that were made directly at the government, but also Canadian people. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The hashtag #ByCanadian protest against the Trump administration. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Lucky Slice Pizza, now open in Logan at 64 Federal Avenue, serving New York-style pizza by the slice and whole pie with handcrafted ingredients, sides, and vegan options as well. More information available at theluckyslice.com. Dr. Jose Oberholzer has a message for people living with diabetes. Based on what we have achieved, I'm very, very confident that we will get over those last obstacles, and in your lifetime, there will be a cure for this. A cellular cure for diabetes. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Simon Tolkien. His latest novel is No Man's Land. It's uh, set in Edwardian England and uh, then a long section at the Battle of Somme in uh, France. This is World War I, and this is inspired by the real-life experiences of Simon Tolkien's grandfather, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, and we're uh, talking about the book on the program uh, today. So, uh, Simon Tolkien, your hero, Adam Rain. Uh, through a series of circumstances, becomes a third son of sorts to uh, to Sir John. Uh, the oldest uh, son welcomes um, Adam in, but uh, but he has a nemesis, Bryce. The second son resents uh, Adam, uh, who also uh, gets accepted into Oxford. I guess uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Bryce's attitude. He he resents the, the the class movement. I think this was how I started the book, Tom is I was interested in the idea of um, somebody, a relation, it was a very hierarchical society. And a son who is kind of rejected and um, dealt with badly by his father. And then the father adopts another, another boy into the house and what the effect is on the son who is already there. Um, the, the relationship between the two of them um, is, is really where the book started, um, and then it blossomed out from there. Um, but the, the boy, he's very unattractive, um, and uh, he's the one who doesn't want to go and fight. He's the one who was given the white feather. He's the one who stays at home. But he's also the one who is in love with the girl, that Adam leaves behind in order to go with the war, and then he marries the girl on the rebound. Um, but his relationship with his father is absolutely integral to the book. 
because he feels rejected by his father, and then um, he's always been the non-preferred son, and his father disapproves of him. And then uh, when his father adopts this other boy into the house, uh, who he considers coming from a way inferior situation, it's really the last straw. And he hates his father, and he hates the newcomer. And so that creates a real tension within within the house, which I was interested in exploring. Mm. How how rigid? I mean, the, the, our view from America is that the, the class system, at least at that, that time, was pretty rigid. This would have been, I don't know, would it would unusual for, rigid, yes. for for someone to be able to. I guess it would take a, an adoption like that for someone to move class to class. Yeah, I, I don't want to give. We don't want to give away the, the the plot of the book, but it is as a result of the fact that the actual uh, estate owner is really saved from death by fire by Adam's father that leads him to um, do this extraordinary act of adopting him into the house uh, as, as, as a new son, which is, is, is a contradiction of, of, of everything, this idea, and it, he's resented by the, uh, by the other servants as well, this idea that somebody should be able to come from the bottom of the heap and go to the top of the heap is echoed in, interestingly, I, I thought it was one of the most interesting parts of Downton Abbey. I don't know if you remember this, Tom, by the chauffeur. Do you remember the chauffeur in yes. mm-hmm. Downton Abbey? Who then um, who falls in love with the second eldest daughter and um, is then the, um, the father that doesn't like it at all. But eventually the chauffeur becomes the actual uh, steward of the, in, of the house and the agent of the house and, and it it succeeds in being brought in, but many of the actual servants, including Thomas, actually hate the chauffeur because he's come from from up above. And so that was um, the different attitude of the servants to the adoption of Adam. The butler really takes him on because uh, the butler can see uh, that everybody else in the house, including um, the, the lady of the house, is trying to shame Adam and make Adam look bad because he doesn't know how to behave in what is a, an extremely rigid and carefully controlled uh, world in which everybody has to do everything in a very particular way. Um, everything had to be uh, to done, done that way or, or, or not at all. And I, I think that was, um, that was interesting to me, um, what it was like in that kind of house. Um, in those days, uh, servants had to be actually seen um, and not heard. Uh, you know, in, in some houses, if a maid was uh, on the stairs when uh, the young man of the house came by or the ladies of the house came by, the maid was supposed to turn their face to the wall so that they wouldn't be seen. Uh, and they had a terrible life, you know, waking up at like 3, 4 in the morning, having to bring up the coal, there wouldn't be hot water. Uh, it was, and you know, brushing everything by hand. There was a lack of machines, vacuum cleaners, or anything like that. So it was a hugely rigorous life. And then going up and sleeping in these cold attic bedrooms, uh, having left their homes, really not seeing their parents at all. And then there's also the aspect of um, young girls going to work as maids in these houses, and then really being preyed upon by the young men of the house. And then if they get pregnant or they get into trouble, 
then being sent away without a reference, and you know, often being forced into prostitution. So it was a it was a pretty hard life that uh, many of these people led, and I wanted to bring that across by a kind of cross section of what the servants were like. Just have a, a, about three minutes left in the conversation. I want to end the conversation on the, on the cost of, of war, uh, and you depict this in, in your main character, Adam. And as we know, a uh, you know, large swath of a whole generation of young men gone, and many of those who returned uh, with serious psychological uh, problems. Yeah, really, really, really hard, and often not the... Um the medicine or the psychological care to know how to deal with this at all. And um, a, bar, a part of my book at the end is, is how he tries to sort of reconnect with the world and a world that really doesn't understand what, what he's experienced and how he tries to find a way of repairing his relationship uh, with the girl that he was in love with. Um, and all that has gone before. And it was a huge cost of war. And of course, then the extraordinary part of what the effect, this is outside really the scope of my book, but what the effect of that war was on that generation, the sense that they never wanted to go through that again, which when fascism started to arise in Europe, very much affected the attitude of both Britain and France, and in particular Britain, towards appeasement. And the book that I'm writing at the minute, which is about the Spanish Civil War, is very much affected by that, by the fact that uh, Britain and uh, France and America, they didn't want to get involved in any other kind of war, which was why, you know, in the book that I'm writing at the minute, um, there was nobody went to the help of Spain, just like they never went to the help of Czechoslovakia. And the new book I'm writing is about, um, it's actually about American volunteers who went out to fight in the Spanish Civil War. So uh, that's really following on from the um, effects of the First World War. That it was so catastrophic and so awful and so many people died that there was a determination never to fight a war again, which, uh, you know, then led to the events in the late 1930s. Mm. Just about a minute left. You uh, said earlier in the program that uh, this you were you're, this is inspired by real life experiences of your grandfather. You write in the book. This book honors sure. the memory of your grandfather who fought on the Somme between July and October of mm. nineteen sixteen. What's what's been that that personal? Have you if you felt a deeper connection to your grandfather through this? You know, it's been absolutely huge for me. I feel that, um, as I say, you know, I came to writing late. Felt very overshadowed by my grandfather. And in a curious way, too, in order to be a writer, I've had to, you know, being my the grandson of J.R.R. Tolkien has helped me, you know, with publicity and everything. But in a way, this has actually brought me closer back to my grandfather, because I feel that I have brought to life what was a really important part of his experience. We touched on this at the beginning, and obviously in any interview, you can't cover everything. But I do feel that the effects of the First World War are very strong in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's not an allegorical in any way, but the landscapes uh, and of, of the psalm are very present in there. The way in which the evil in The Lord of the Rings, people like Sauron and Saruman, uh, really have turned... Uh, use machines as against the, uh, and have decimated the landscape. So I think it's very much an important part of, um, of of the Lord of the Rings. And I think what happens to Frodo in the Lord of the Rings is very similar 
to what happened to people who went through war. And when Frodo comes back from having thrown the ring into Mount Doom, he is a changed character. He is half the person he was. He's a shadow of himself. And I think that this is true also of the way in which um, people who fought in the war were changed by it and uh, overwhelmed by it. So I, I, I think that um, writing this book has brought me much, much closer to my grandfather. And I do think it honors him. I'm pleased with the book. I think it's a good book. And I, I'm really happy when people read it. Um, because I think it is my best work. And I think it also um, does honor my grandfather, an important part of what he uh, he went through. We will uh, leave the conversation there out of time. Uh, Simon Tolkien's new book, very interesting book, uh, uh, the novel No Man's Land. And uh, previously he's author of uh, um, several other books, including Orders from Berlin, The Inheritance, Final Witness, and The King of uh, Diamonds. And uh, sounds like a new book will be uh, coming out uh, at uh, some point, the Spanish uh, Civil War. Uh, Simon Tolkien has joined us from Oxford. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Tom. It's been absolutely great. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Composer Philip Glass on the first rehearsal of a new piece. It's a birthing. There's no other way to talk about it. Something comes into the world that hasn't been there before. The excitement among the performers and the composer is extremely intense. A Philip Glass world premiere on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partner, the USU Office of Global Engagement, for sponsoring the UPR original series, Crossing Borders. Find out how you can become a sponsor of a UPR original series by calling 435-797-3138. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.